Okay, join me if you would in First John, chapter two. We will look at verses twenty-six and twenty-seven today. And I had planned on going farther to the end of the chapter, but you all know me by now. I just I get stuck on on stuff. So look at these two verses today. Well, let's pray as we go to God's word. Our Father, by your Spirit, may that which we have heard from the beginning, the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, persist to live within and among your people in this place. May we thus be firmly rooted and established in the faith, so that we are not moved by the winds and the waves of doctrine, but rather remain united to Christ and sharing in the divine fellowship of eternal life. And may these truths that we hear this morning be instilled in us and animate in us a hope in the coming of the Lord Jesus. In his name we ask, amen. If you would stand for the reading of God's word, we will read from verse 18 of chapter 2 through uh, 27. And again, the message will be on 26 and 27. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it taught you, abide in him. Amen. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. Lies tend to play on our desires, the things we want. Uh, you want to have that, don't you? Or you, you? You don't want that to happen to you. Um, and perhaps the most powerful of all lies are those ones that play on our desires and our sense of identity, who we are. Um, Genesis 3 tells us that Eve saw that the fruit was good for food, and she reached out and she took it and she ate it. But perhaps the more fundamental lie than that is good fruit is the lie of the serpent. You want to be 
like God. He's, he's touching on her very identity. On the flip side, if we want to defend against lies, there are many effective motivations. Um, we can entice people to the truth with appealing rewards. Similarly, we can also warn people of the dangers of falsehood. And John does both in, in the next passage we'll look at next week in verse 28 when he says, And now little children abide in him so that when he appears... We may have confidence. It's a a positive reward. But also, and not shrink from him a warning at his coming. There's another motivation, and that's what we're looking at today, is to speak to our identity, who we are. Why don't you take an American flag outside and, and trample on it and burn it? Is it because you're worried about what people might think of you if you did, but deep down you really, really want to? Or is it because you're an American and because you don't want to trample the American flag? It's a a symbol of who you are as a person. This is John's tack here in 26 and 27. There are these deceivers, liars, who would entice people away from the truth of the gospel and into false expressions of Christianity. And John's exhortation here is really very simple, abide in him. And we've seen this throughout already. This is a theme in First John. Abide in him, remain, persist in faith in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he gives us, in verse 27, primarily reasons for this, foundational reasons, identity realities that, if realized in the heart of the Christian, will not only entice them to stay in Christ, but it will cement them in their fundamental identity as believers. So before we uh, look at these realities, and I I have four of them here, um, just a word on structure I think will help with clarity, is that John's point is very simple in these two verses. There are these deceivers, but I want you to abide in Christ. He says in verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. He's been writing to them, we read this morning, about these people who he calls antichrists. In the preceding verses, and they are deceivers, they're presenting doctrines about Jesus that are not true, and their goal is not just to speak these doctrines, but to invite and entice other people to join them in them. But, against these deceivers, he contrasts believers, he says, but the anointing you received, and in the Greek, the emphasis is really on you, but you. And the contrast is very stark. He says, but you, and actually the, the verb that completes the subject is, is the imperative at the very end of the sentence, and it's all one sentence, uh, verse 27 is in the Greek, and the, and the verb that completes it is abide. So, but you abide in him. That's what he's saying. And then there's all this stuff, he says, in between. These indicatives that undergird the imperative, these realities that support his exhortation. So, I hope we'll listen to these realities closely 
because we are no less surrounded by enticing lies than they were. And, and if we say, well, they're not enticing to me, or I'm good, then we're, we're deceiving ourselves. We need to be vigilant, and these things will cement us in Christ. So the first thing I want to look at that, that's true about them, that's true about you, and that supports John's exhortation to abide in Christ is we abide because we have an anointing. We have an anointing. The anointing that you received from him abides in you. There are deceivers, but you, the anointing you received abides in you. And the implication is, therefore, abide in him. So for John, there must be something about this anointing that separates us from the deceivers and galvanizes us against their lives. And what is this anointing? We talked about it some before, as it came up in verse 20 of chapter 2. Um, you, you have, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, he says in verse 20, and you have all knowledge. You all have knowledge. So John, when he uses this this metaphor of anointing, um, is an Old Testament reference. Anointing was an act of setting usually a person or sometimes a thing aside, consecrating it uh, to our particular purpose. And often it was uh, with oil, was this sort of signifying agent. In the Old Testament, men were anointed to serve in the offices of prophet, priest, and king. They'd often be anointed with oil as part of the process. And they were given this special anointing of the Spirit to perform their task of prophet, priest, or king. But in the New Covenant, Christ, Christ means anointed, Christ himself was anointed and he fulfills the offices of prophet, priest, and king. Heidelberg Catechism 31 asks, why is he called Christ, that is anointed? And answers, because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption, our only high priest, by the one sacrifice of his body, has redeemed us, and who continually intercedes for us before the Father, and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit, and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. So Christ is the anointed one, the anointed prophet, priest, and king. And yet, we being united to him through faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit, begin to share in his anointing. This is the promise of of the new covenant. Not only certain individuals will be anointed for a particular task, but all believers, all Christians, will be anointed. The Bible also talks about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. This is an allusion to anointing. As the pouring out of oil, so the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And this is not something that only um, elite Christians or educated Christians or ultra-spiritual Christians or or mystical Christians or higher uh, uh, knowledge, higher plane Christians or Christians with the second blessing or super-sanctified Christians This is not something that that any of those people have, but all Christians have 
the anointing. And thus we reflect Christ as the true prophet, priest, and king. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a kingly priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim a prophetic office, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, And I, I just love this, the way that the, the Heidelberg Catechism does this. It asks, why is he called Christ? And then the next question, question 32, says, why are you called a Christian? And the answer, because I am a member of Christ by faith and thus share in his anointing, so that I may, as a prophet, confess his name, as priest, present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, and as king, fight with a free and good conscience against, against sin and the devil in this life and hereafter reign with him eternally over all creatures. So the long and short of the question, how do we stand firm against deceivers, is God. God has anointed us. It begins with him. He established us by the power of his Holy Spirit. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So John does not urge these Christians to abide in Christ against deceptions based on their own abilities, their own strength, their own resolve or intelligence. He says that the promised anointing has come and taken up established residence in your heart and among you as people and that you are anointed people. That's the foundation for your abiding. This should be a source of confidence for us when we encounter various kinds of lies in the world and the enticement of sin, that God has consecrated me with the anointing oil of the Holy Spirit unto Christ, and I reflect him as prophet, priest, and king in this world. What identity could possibly be more enticing than that one to draw us away from Christ? This identity, this truth, takes our desire for glory and dignity and significance, which I would suggest are not bad desires, only perverted by sin, and it redeems them. Puts them in their proper place so that we're no longer trying to be the sun, S-U-N, but we are the moon, reflecting the light and beauty and majesty of Christ in the world. So that you have the anointing abiding in you, this is a compelling reason to abide in Christ. The second thing that's true about you and cements you in Christ is that we abide because we do not need any mediatorial instruction. We do not need any mediatorial instruction. Verse 27, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. So this one, this in indicative is an implication of the first one. If you have the anointing of the Spirit, there's no need for anyone to, to teach you, to expose you to new, fresh revelation beyond what you already have in Christ. 
Now this requires some, some explanation. Because if there's no need for anyone to teach them, why is John writing them this letter at all? Why doesn't he just let the Holy Spirit do his thing? Why would we be here this morning at all? Well, why, why is there the office of elder or overseer whom Paul says must be able to teach? Why don't we just go into our prayer closet with our Bible and the anointing of the Holy Spirit and, and, and just grow in grace? Or maybe like, like we talked about this morning, the Quakers, we could just gather in a circle and whoever says whatever they want about what God's saying to them. Why don't we do these things? talked about this this morning as well in Sunday school, but these would be possible inferences from this text if we had only this snippet of the Word of God. Okay, maybe we don't need anyone to teach us, but since we have the whole entirety of the Word of God, which clearly uh, negates that proposition, not only are they not possible inferences, they're impossible inferences. It will help us to understand John's context as well in the broader uh, biblical context of what he's doing here. Um, John is combating a specific form of heresy, probably com- some kind of proto-Gnosticism, which, which says we have an inside track to God. We have a higher form of knowledge. Um, here's a, a modern-day example that I think is similar in some sort of charismatic Pentecostal Circles. They take these Old Testament passages about the anointing of prophets and sort of misapply them to modern day pastors. Um, for example, Psalm 105:15 says, "Do not touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm." Which they take to mean when Pastor Bob or Pastor Cynthia offers a prophetic word, don't be critical of that word because you are attacking God's anointed prophet. You despise prophecy, you disregard the Lord's anointed, but if you listen, you'll get to get in on their inside track, this special word from God that they hear from God in a really special way, and you don't, by the way. Now, in the Old Covenant, there were people who had something of an inside track. People who were uniquely anointed to mediate, mediate revelatory information. Or to mediate the worship of the people to God. Prophets and priests primarily. And John says, no, not in the new covenant. You all have the abiding anointing. Therefore, there's no need for you to receive mediated instruction. This is new covenant language. Jeremiah 31 31 through 34, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So John does not intend for us to understand that there's no need for any instruction, teaching in the New Covenant. This would be a direct contradiction of the New Testament's teaching. 
Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 2, the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be, he lists a bunch of qualifications, including able to teach. Again to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In James 3, 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who do teach will be judged with greater strictness. So clearly he doesn't mean, well, there's no teaching or teachers in, in the Bible. Rather, the, the role of the teacher is different in the New Covenant than it was in the Old Specific people were then designed, designated as revelators, people who revealed or mediated God's will to the people. And this is, I think, what the proto-Gnostic teachers wanted them to believe they were, as some sort of revelators. But in the New Covenant, there is but one final revelator. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus is the once and for all final revelator, mediator of God's truth to us. And so Christ's officers in the church are are not to dispense any new revelation, but only to reveal him, to reveal Christ. Even the apostles are are only conveying the word of Christ, the testimony of Christ, as they write the New Testament. This is why John, he takes such pains in this book to say, I'm not writing a new commandment, but an old one. I'm not writing to you because you don't know the truth, but because you know the truth. So, abide in Christ, because the revelation that you have in Christ the mediator that you have in Christ, already, by virtue of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, Spirit, so far surpasses any uh, claims of of revelation or, or mediation or anointing that the world has to offer you in its place. That that's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. The revelation of Jesus Christ is better, better than every other form you could you could have. The, the revelation these false teachers are offering is like, like those old flashlights that we used to use with their plastic and they have the little incandescent bulb with like the C batteries that, that last for about 10 minutes and then there's, you can't hardly see anything compared to the revelation of Jesus Christ as the sun. So it's not even worth comparing. Now, the third indicative and follows, follows again from the second. Um, if, if you have no need for anyone to teach you, it is because your anointing teaches you. The anointing of the Holy Spirit teaches you. Again, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it taught you, abide in him. So, how do we know that what John is saying and proposing is true in contrast to what the, the false teachers were saying? 
Or how do we know that the Bible is true in contrast to what other people are saying or other religious books are saying? Well, there's two things I would suggest from this text. is First, the teaching of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And second, the content of that teaching. The Holy Spirit teaches us and He teaches us about something. So the teaching of the Spirit. Um, do, do John's readers believe him because his arguments are so compelling or because he apparently loves them so much yes those things are both true obvious in the first book of first john and that probably factors in but ultimately john here points to the holy spirit the teaching of the anointing and undoubtedly, he's thinking back to what he heard Jesus say in the upper room, and we have in John 14 through 16, about the arrival of the Helper. Um, J.I. Packer, he refers to it as the coming of the teacher spirit. He teaches you. John 14:26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring, you to, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then in 16, 12, uh, he says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. That's what a teacher does. He guides us into truth. Uh, this is why I think the Westminster Confession says in chapter 1, section 5, uh, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture saying the church teaches us the scripture is good and we may listen to that and it goes on and the heavenliness of the matter the efficacy of the doctrine the majesty of the style the consent of all the parts the scope of the whole which is to give all glory to God the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Um, in other words, the, the Bible is a really a compelling document. Is that ultimately why we believe it's true? It goes on, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth of the divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So just ultimately, again, God brings us to a point of believing that this word of the gospel is true. The Holy Spirit is the, the illuminating, the convicting, the guiding personality behind our fullness of understanding in Christ. He is our teacher, working primarily in and through the word of God. He also teaches us about something. There's content to his teaching. Um, if someone tells you something is from the Holy Spirit and proceeds to tell you that something and it, it urges you away from Christ or is contrary to the word of Christ or minimizes Christ or distracts from Christ or emphasizes the role of the Holy Spirit above Christ, then it's not from the Holy Spirit. That's why the, the John says that the anointing specifically teaches us to abide in Christ. That's from the Holy Spirit. Just as it taught you, abide in Him. 
Notice again what Jesus says about the role of the Holy Spirit in John. Um, John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, I will send to you from the Father the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit is going to bear witness about Jesus. And in 16, 12. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit's role is is to magnify Christ. It's all about Christ, to, to, to deliver us Christ. Um, J.I. Packer again, he says, The Spirit's post-Pentecostal task is essentially that of mediating the presence, word, and activity of the enthroned Christ. And, and we saw that really in spades as we went through Acts over the last couple of years. But how much better, again, is the teacher is the anointing of the Holy Spirit as a teacher rather than these false teachers. The Spirit who mediates to us the presence, word, and activity of the enthroned Christ as opposed to the deceptions of men who do not ultimately give us Christ at all. And finally here, the last... Um, indicative that supports his exhortation is that John continues to affirm the superiority of our revealing anointing over the deceivers and we abide because our anointing is true and not a lie our anointing is true and not a lie notice the names again in John that Jesus gives the spirit in John 14 Uh, 16 and 17, I'll ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth. That's what he's called, the Spirit of Truth. And then again in 16, uh, 12, when the Spirit of Truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So he is true. And in one sense, that seems really fairly obvious. Of course, the anointing is true if it's of the Spirit. And, And what does this really contribute to John's point? And from his opponent's perspective, of course John's going to say it's true and not a lie. Everyone says their position is true and not a lie. But I think there's something a bit richer going on here. And still playing off of the imagery of anointing. That is when a prophet or a priest or a king was anointed with oil, the oil itself does not make him a king or a priest or a prophet. And yet there's a sense in which the signatory effect of the oil conveys a reality. The same kind of imagery is is applied of oil to the Holy Spirit. And if the oil conveys a reality, how much more the person of the Spirit? So bear with me here, because I think this is important that we see the signatory effect of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And we see this in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel, your salvation, and believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So there is something forward-looking in our anointing, a question of hope, something that, that speaks to us of our present position and identity, but also the future glory of we who will be uh, and, and who we will be. And we'll see that in a few weeks in chapter 3. Um, looking forward to who we will be. The way that Paul talks about the sealing effect of the Spirit as a guarantee of that which is to come seems to, to correlate the imagery of the sealing oil of anointing that conveys a reality beyond which it signifies to that of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And Paul seems to be drawing this, this connection explicitly in a passage I already read from, from 2 Corinthians 1, um, 20-22. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him, Christ, we utter our Amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Uh, C.R. Vaughn, in his book, um, The Gifts of the Holy Spirit, has this to say about this. Uh, I found it helpful. In the physical anointing with oil, there was included the pouring out of the material, the purpose to be served by it, and the effect on the person of the individual anointed. In the anointing of the Spirit, there is the agency applied, which is the Spirit himself, the purpose to be gained, the consecration of the individual, or some special service of God, and the impression made on the heart and spirit of the anointed man to fit him for that service. So that to say, when the spirit is compared to the oil of anointing, which signifies and seals to us the future promises of God and Christ, it is a significant affirmation and not, not redundant for John to say it is true and not a lie. That this, this is a sign of real substance to you, to your heart, that you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I have a, a pastor friend who one time had a guy request to come into the church building and to anoint the windows with oil to, to prevent demonic activity from coming inside. I'm sure his intentions were good, given the benefit of the doubt. But that's a vacuous sign, without any truth behind it. I dare say, it's a lie. It has no substance. But God's promises are real, and the guarantee of the Spirit is real. It's true, and it is no lie. We go back to verse 25 and look at his promises, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. The seal of the anointing spirit in our hearts is, is a guarantee of that promise. Consecrating me unto Christ in whom all God's promises find their yes and amen, that is not a vacuous sign. It's a substantive, true, and preserving sign. So we're going to get into this more next week. As we look at the abiding, he again uh, uh, calls them 
exhorts them to abide in Christ in verse 28. I'll leave you with this little tidbit is, is that the substance of our abiding in God is his faithfulness to us. A faithfulness bound up in his very character. That is the source of our, our abiding ultimately. That's where our anointing comes from. He lo- we love because he first loved us. We abide because he first anointed us. Praise God. Amen.